Good evening, and happy Thanksgiving. It's nice to see you all. I'm sure you're like me, you're probably fasting in preparation. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just being silly. This evening we are uh, in Nehemiah chapter 5. You can turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. You know, one of the scriptures that really touches my heart as it relates to the character of the nature, the servant nature of Jesus, is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When I consider that the Lord of all creation, the creator of all things, God himself, when, when he appeared, chose to come in the very form of a servant, as a man. And so much is written about this, but when you think about it, not only did he go from being uh, not a man, God, to being God a man, but he never went back to being not a man. He's still a man, a glorified man, but a man nonetheless. And so a man sits on the throne of God. It's a very heady thought. But as we consider the servant nature of Christ, it's so important that we look to this as an example for our leaders and for ourselves. And so Nehemiah becomes probably one of the best examples of servant leadership in the Bible, next to Jesus. Because he was a leader, he was a governor, he was a politician, he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And yet, when it came to his heart and his desire to serve his people, I don't know of anyone with the possible exceptions of maybe Joseph and Daniel who even come close. As we look at this this evening, let's allow the Lord to show us the heart of Christ in Nehemiah, but also measure our hearts against the heart of Nehemiah. And also, let's look to our leaders, not just within the church, but within our culture, and realize that this, this is really the true character and the nature of a God-inspired leader. That a leader, if they choose to stand up and, and, and be Christ to others, is going to live their lives in a way where they're serving others, not themselves. And again, Nehemiah becomes a wonderful example of this very character, the character of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. As we go through this study in chapter 5, may we truly see your heart, the heart that you gave to Nehemiah, and how Nehemiah took that and really just lived it out as you inspired him, as you directed him, as he prayed his way through all of the same selfish things that we have to deal with, the selfish motives, the difficulties, the challenges, all of the things that we also contend with. But he got past them and was able to be used by you in a mighty way. May we do likewise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do is just break this down into small sections. We're just going to go through this chapter. It's not very complicated, not a lot of history or anything. Just, just some very practical examples of how Nehemiah served the people of Israel, the Jews, living in the Middle East, in the city of Jerusalem, at the time that the Persian Empire, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, was ruling the known world. We pick it up in verses uh, 1 through 5, and here we see that Nehemiah refused to allow the leaders among the Jews to take advantage of their own people. 
and he becomes that example. Let's see what it says in verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery, or indentured service, service, slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. It's not hard for us to imagine difficult financial times. We've all, I'm sure, unless you're a secret billionaire and I don't know about it, um, we've all had to curb some of our behavior and change things we've, we used to purchase maybe or as much or do, doing some of the things we used to do because with inflation being the way it is, it just costs more money for everything right now. Everything from heating oil. I mean, every time I hear my furnace go on, I think, oh. I've learned to get used to like 66 degrees in the house. It's not so bad. It's not so bad, really. Anyway, uh, I do know this. I do know that gas is expensive. So you think, oh, you know, do I really want to travel uh, an hour and a half away? You know? Uh, heating oil, as I mentioned, food. And, you know, that's the one thing I'll eat no matter what. I don't care about that so much. But I'm going to eat no matter whether it's expensive or not. But because you have to eat, right? You don't have to get in the car. Uh, you can take a little cooler house, but, you know, you need to eat. So, But maybe we don't buy as many steaks, or maybe we're just not living at the same level that we were even a few months ago or years ago. Listen, we all understand sometimes we have to do that, you know, unforeseen expenses. Well, here's what was happening in the Middle East, in Jerusalem at this time. The people are crying out against their Jewish brothers. It's not that they're crying out against the Gentiles. They're crying out against their Jewish brothers because they needed to purchase grain in order to feed their growing families. Now, the positive thing is that they were becoming numerous. They were growing. Their families were growing. But they needed to purchase more food as a result. Uh, parents know this. As your kids get bigger, they eat more. Have you noticed that, parents? They eat more. And then you start to think, What's, what am I going to do when they're teenagers? Especially if you have boys, right, Manuel? They eat, and it seems like they got bottomless pits. Well, these families were indeed growing, and they needed more. And so they were forced to mortgage their property in order to purchase grain during what was a famine. And so they were forced to borrow money in order to pay the king's tax on their property. We all know about that. I, my taxes went up big time this last year. And uh, yeah, so now it's like I wasn't planning on that extra $1,800 a year, but hey, guess what? I got to pay it or I'm in trouble. So it, it, we all can relate to these things. That's the point. I'm not, I'm not playing my violin. I'm just saying that we all know that all of a sudden, you know, your car needs to be repaired. Things need to be paid for, and it can become stressful. The people were stressing out because they weren't, they were doing everything they could to survive, mortgaging their, their property, uh, borrowing money to pay taxes, uh, that's a dangerous situation. When you borrow money to pay something that is never going to go down, it's just going to only go up, it, it becomes a vicious cycle. And indeed it did. And so they were forced to sell their own sons and daughters into slavery, or they needed to become indentured servants. They needed to serve as slaves to others within their community. And this became problematic. 
and their own people were doing nothing to prevent their children from being enslaved. Their own people weren't doing anything. They were unable to free their daughters from slavery because they had mortgaged their property and they owed a debt. And when you owe a debt, sometimes they'll put a lien on your house or you know, repossess your car if you don't make payments. And so it's very stressful. Anyone who knows anything about financial problems at any point in their lives knows the stress that comes with not being able to pay your bills, right? Okay. Now here's the thing. Nehemiah, as a leader, was faced with the enormous needs among his people. We're going to look at it from the standpoint now of Nehemiah. How did he deal with it? How did he deal with it? You know, here's the, here's the thing. He looked at the people he's leading and realized they have needs. And by the way, I'm just going to say this because this is so important. I have always believed that if you're involved in ministry and you're uh, essentially receiving your salary from the generous donations of people that support the ministry, you should live a frugal life. I'm not saying you have to live, you know, in a cardboard box over on Passaic Avenue. I'm not suggesting you have to live in poverty, but it's not right. And I'm going to be bold about saying this because I'm getting older and I can do that. Um, But, you know, listen, it's not right for pastors or ministry leaders living off of the generosity and the giving of others to live so far above the means of the people. And in fact, there are some that because they live in a, and work in a wealthy area, they believe that their salary should match the people they're ministering to. I don't necessarily believe that, but many times it's worse than that. Many times the pastors and the ministry leaders are living well above the lifestyle of the people they're serving. So here's the thing. Uh, it is really a challenge at times, but you have to trust God and you have to know that when, when you receive a salary in the ministry, uh, you need to make sure as you look around that you're somewhere around the average, at least, of the people you're serving. But many times you'll have someone in, in an impoverished area making three or four times the average, and it's just wrong. And I think Nehemiah shows this. Because the heart of Nehemiah is to serve others, he's not going to abuse any privilege he has. We'll see that through this study. But here's what happens. When you're faced with the enormous needs among God's people, and you share those needs, like for me, if I go to the grocery store and and I look at the cost of something, or I, I can't find eggs, or whatever it is, I know where you're at because you're living in the same area as I am, going to the same stores, but if I'm living well above everyone else, which I'm not, I assure you, then I'm kind of out of touch. I can't really relate to the people that I'm serving and teaching. Nehemiah understood this. He understood that people were numerous. They were hungry. He understood that they were bankrupt. They were in debt. Now, it doesn't mean he needed to be bankrupt and in debt, but he he understood something of their need because he was living among them. He knew that they were burdened. They were overtaxed. And he knew that they were enslaved and felt powerless. And because he could connect with them, he's in a position to be able to help them. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're untouched by the people's problems, you're not going to be able to relate to where people are and the problems they face. I mean, if you don't look at your grocery bill and say, wow, that's twice what it was, you know, two years ago, uh, then you don't understand the people in the congregation that you're ministering to because that's what they're going through. We're all going through that. 
And so it isolates you from the needs of the people. Nehemiah was not this man. He was very well connected to the needs of the people. And we'll see that as we go through this. But that he first understood the enormous needs among his people. That is God's people. Then we see that Nehemiah confronted the Jewish nobles and the officials, that is the other leaders that were living above the means of the other people. He confronted them for taking advantage of their own people. You see, here's the amazing thing. In times of financial crisis, there are always those that get rich. Have you noticed that? Because wealth begets wealth. And many times, you know, you have members of Congress that, you know, they vote on bills and they know that if the bill passes, they can, they can benefit from the bill passing. So they invest and they make money. It's corruption. Let's call it what it is. But you understand that when there's those of us, among us, let's, let's just talk about God's people for a minute, who are benefiting from the difficulties and the enormous needs of others, that's a problem. That's a problem. I have to say, I've met some business people in the church over the years that are just wonderful business people. I'm very fortunate. And I can tell you, contractors, uh, professionals, mechanics, I go down the list of people I've met who, you know, when they find out that you're car salesmen even, imagine that, um, when, you, when they find out you're a Christian, they make a connection, they do the best they can for you. They're not looking, not, I mean, they need to make a living, but they're not looking to take advantage of you, right? That's what I guess I'm trying to say. But sadly, and I'm sure you've had testimony shared with you as well, there are sometimes Christians that they come to the church and they're literally taking advantage of people. Oh, I'll help you out, and they're charging double. That's sickening. And here's how Nehemiah dealt with that the nobles and the officials that were taking advantage of their own people. Look at verses 6 through 8. Well, we're going to see how Nehemiah deals with it, but let's, let's read. It says, When I heard, Nehemiah writes, their outcry, that's the people's outcry, and these charges, I was very angry. You know why I like Nehemiah? Because he gets very angry. He's a godly man, but he gets angry. That gives me hope because, you know, I get angry about these things. I really do. I legitimately get angry about seeing other people taken advantage of. Now, how you respond to that matters. And we see Nehemiah, he always responds in the right way. But, well, there is one scene toward the end of the book, you might say he kind of stepped over the line, but we'll get there. But, you know, what I do know is that in this situation, he handles it well, but he's very angry. You ever get very angry because of the abuse you see people suffer? Some people get so angry they do something about it. That is, they get involved in nonprofits and they try to help people because they're angry. And that, sometimes anger is a good motivator. When it's an anger that's not a selfish anger, it's an anger because you care about others, it's important to, to be honest about it. And he said, I was not just angry, very angry. I pondered them, that is, when, when, he, when he heard the charges. He pondered these charges in, in my mind, and he says, and... Uh, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury, that's that's interest, from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. I like that. He had them. He called them out. You know, there are some people who feel it's more godly to not say anything. I've never had that problem. I'm Sicilian. 
But I do know that when you express something properly, and you're angry, but you express it properly, and you don't lose your cool, you actually can make an impact. And he did make an impact because these people had nothing to say. Generally, when someone has nothing to say, it's because there's nothing to be said, right? (laughs) Notice it says they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now, as I look at this, I like the way he responded, but he was very angry with them when he heard the outcry of the people. When he heard the people express their needs. He took time, though. Did you notice what he did? He was angry, but what did he do? He took time to think. He pondered. This is a major pitfall. When you get very angry, righteously angry, and you don't take time to think about it, when you don't take time to ponder what you're about to say, and you just open your mouth without thinking, you almost always get it wrong. There have been a couple of times in my life where I've gotten it right. But most of the time, I I tend to say the wrong thing or the right thing even at the wrong time, and and then basically I blow it. And then then it just makes things worse. There was a situation over the last uh, probably year or two. Yeah, it was over the last year. And uh, I was very angry about something. It was something involved with ministry. And I, I immediately opened my mouth after I pondered what I was about to say. And it came out, and what came out was exactly what needed to be said. And I thought to myself, oh, Lord, can I always do it this way? Because it was so effective. And afterwards, I knew I needed to say it. And it was said in just the right way. Like I said, it's, it's kind of a white buffalo. It doesn't happen all that often. But, but when it did, I realized this is the goal, to be able to express yourself after having taken the time to think it through. So he took the time before he accused them. And then he accused them of charging their own people interest on their debt. Now, notice what he did, though. Another thing, he publicly confronted them. Did you see that? He called them out in public. This was a public problem, so it needed to be called out publicly. It wasn't personal. He publicly confronted them for their actions. Then the Jews had done their best to free their people from slavery among the Gentiles. They had raised funds, figured out a way to restore their nation. And these nobles and officials, these so-called leaders, were enslaving their own people to other Jews. Think about that. They were unable to defend themselves against these charges because the charges were true. So what did Nehemiah have to deal with? Well, in this second section, we see Nehemiah had to deal with the many problems among his people. He was angry with them, with a righteous anger. He took the time to think before he accused them of wrongdoing, but he publicly confronted them, those that were guilty of wrongdoing. So what he did ultimately was he dealt with the problem effectively in the appropriate setting. And when you do that, you bring about change. So that's a great challenge right there. We could just kind of stop and say, oh, that's enough to work on, isn't it? You know, sometimes in class, I, I go to a class, a martial arts training, and I, about half an hour in, I'm like, I can go home and just, I, I got enough to work on for the next three weeks, you know? That's probably enough for the next three lifetimes. To be able to respond in the appropriate way when we get very angry. Great example. Well, then, Nehemiah, he gave them some direction. He directed the Jewish nobles and the officials to stop doing the things they were doing, stop taking advantage of their own people after having called them out. And so we read in verse 9, So I continued, What you are doing is not right. 
Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury or the interest you are charging them. And here was the interest rate. You ready for this? The hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. They were get, getting or paying a 1% interest rate. <laughs> now, for a while, interest rates were that low. Uh, at least when you put money in the bank, they were that low. But it's funny how... You know, you put money in the bank and you get 0.05%. But then if you want to take out a loan, it's like 2%. I'm not quite sure how that works. But in either case, now we're getting up there. Now I'm seeing rates 6, 7 for loans, maybe more, depending. Um, and, of course, for savings rates, you know, floating somewhere between 4 and 5, depending on the term. So interest rates are clearly going up. That's true. But imagine, if you, if you will with me, if you were alive, some of you were not perhaps, uh, in the 70s, when interest rates were 12, 13, 14%, these guys were having a difficult time of 1%. And you might be thinking, they're complaining about nothing. I'll take 1% any day of the week. Yeah, but you know, this is not the kind of culture or economy that we have today. These people were living hand to mouth. They could barely make enough money in a day to survive for a day. So a 1% interest rate would ultimately put them in the poorhouse. And that's what was happening. They were having to mortgage all of their property to keep paying their bills, as we see. And so what Nehemiah did, he called them out on it. He corrected and challenged them to walk in the fear of God. See, if you walk in the fear of God, you're not going to take advantage of people. This is why I didn't go into sales, ever. I'm not a good salesperson. I'm a pretty good account manager. I can do all those kinds of jobs. But when it comes to selling somebody something... I'm kind of glad as a pastor I don't do that, but I'm saying I know that if I had to live off my commissions, I'd be in trouble because I probably wouldn't make any commission. You know, I I have a heart for people, and I just can't imagine not helping people. So this is why I'm a pastor and not a salesman. You know, it's really sad that there are many pastors that are salesmen, but that's another story. So he commanded them to continue lending the people money. That's okay. But don't charge them interest. Help them. Don't harm them. See, interest harms people. You know, loan sharks will charge you this ridiculous 20, 30, 40%. I mean, that's just MasterCard and Visa, right? Uh, I look at some of these interest rates and I think to myself, Ooh, don't do it. Don't do it. It's awful. He and his brothers and his men were also lending money to those in need. They were, but charging interest to those who were borrowing money was considered an abusive practice at that time. It's part of our economy now. We build our economy around debt. So it's a little different for us today, but that's not how it was then. To have any debt was very dangerous. You could very well end up a servant or a slave very, and lose everything you have with just a little debt. You know, back in the Victorian times, they had debtor's prison. You know, we'll watch period pieces, and you'll hear about so-and-so went to debtor's prison. So that was a different time than the time in which we live today, where everyone's on margin. I mean, everyone owes money, it seems. I don't, but a lot of people do. 
Well, anyway, he commanded them to return all the property. How did they get that property? By charging interest, right? They confiscated the property. So he told them, return all the property and the interest that they had taken from the people. They had taken ownership of all their mortgage property. They had charged the people 1% for their outstanding debt, and they were paying for this interest with their money, which they needed to pay taxes, their grain, which they needed to feed their families, their new wine, and their oil. So it was a vicious cycle. And this is what happens for us, maybe not at the 1% level. We'd all wish to have that interest rate. But when you start to think about between 5 and 10% or even more, Credit cards are, what, over 20 in some cases. When you get to that level, you can't get out of that debt without selling something, without handing over something or getting into more debt. You consolidate, and now you're consolidating to pay the interest. It's dangerous. This is what these people were doing to their own countrymen. And sadly, in our culture, we do the same. So how did Nehemiah deal with it? Well, he had to correct these many injustices among his people. So he addressed their wrongdoing while encouraging the right way to live. One of the things when you're going to correct somebody, you need to correct them properly, but you need to direct them properly. You can't just correct people. You have to direct people. This is really important with children. If you're telling a child what's wrong and you never tell them what's right, you're just really harming them. Because they're just going to go through life figuring that they just get it wrong all the time. So, no, that's not the way to do it. This is the way to do it. It's much more uh, productive than, no, that's wrong. Get out of my sight. You know, and I, I've, I've unfortunately seen some parents, not in this church, but I've seen some parents, you know, out there in the world just, just really uh, break their children's souls just by not, by just correcting them and not, pro- not appropriately, and not directing them either. So this is what he did. He directed them. This is the right way. Gave them an opportunity to do the right thing, and demanded that they obey the word of God, which is what he was doing, by the way. He exercised his authority on behalf of those in need. Did you hear what I said? He exercised his authority on behalf of those in need. Those who are powerful, those that have authority and wealth, are given a glorious opportunity in the kingdom of God to represent or care for those in need. If you are among the haves, and actually when you look at the world economy, we're all among the haves. We have a wonderful, glorious opportunity to help the have-nots. And, and quite frankly, whether it's a missions trip to India or El Salvador, or, or you have an opportunity to go downtown Patterson or Passaic, when you're giving to others, you're going to find the true meaning of blessing. Because what did Jesus say? It is more blessed to give than to receive. That sounds nice until you do it and you realize it really is true. It really is true. When you take of the many blessings that God has provided you and give to others, not only do you feel right and good before God, you bless somebody. That feels good. And it detaches you from your wealth. So like maybe I go to a restaurant and I see the waitress, you know, she's, she's hustling. To, to really just, you know, get, his, get the tips. Obviously, they're not hanging out in the restaurant because they like hanging out there. These people are making money. Or they're trying to, trying to make money. And the difference for me between $1 or $2 or $3 or $4 is so small that I have a tendency to just over-tip. Unless, of course, the person is not trying, then that's a different story. But I'm just saying, if the person's really hustling, they're really trying to make money, I mean, what's an extra dollar? 
You know, if it's a $5 tip and you go six, what's it? Well, the, the difference is that person just made a little bit more than they would have made if you didn't give them that dollar. So I, I think what's important to understand is when you have an opportunity to bless somebody else, just take it. Don't think twice. If you hold on to your resources that God has abundantly blessed you with, if you have the resources, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be one of those miserable, cantankerous people who never are happy. But when you let it go, and you give, you're going to be blessed. So why wouldn't you, right? So this is what he's doing. He's challenging them to, to do the right thing, to exercise his authority. He's going to exercise authority on behalf of those in need. He's going to help others and encourage others to help others. And he refused to allow their abusive lending practices to continue. No, no more. It's over. Party's over. Well, the Jewish nobles and officials, to their credit, agreed. You see, because of the way Nehemiah handled it, the problem was corrected. If you mishandle a problem in leadership, you only make it worse. If you handle it properly, you make it better for everyone, including the people who needed to be corrected. But if you shame and humiliate people who get, get it wrong, like little kids, you're not going to make things better, ultimately. You're going to make things far worse. So, the Jewish nobles and officials agreed to stop taking advantage of their own people. Look at verses 12 and 13. We will give it back. I like that. Look at the response. We will give it back. Don't you wish all these crooks said that? We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. That is a a testament to Nehemiah's leadership. That didn't happen by accident. That happened because of the heart of a man who served others and how he handled himself. Then, Nehemiah writes, I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath. (laughs) He wanted it in writing. And he made them take an oath to do what they had promised. I also, now this is a very dramatic way of saying this, but I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise, so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. Sort of a dramatic way of saying you know, essentially, may you be cursed. May you suffer if you don't do what it is you've said. This is what you would do in the ancient culture when you made an oath, but he's holding them to the oath and says, if you don't do what you promised, may this happen to you. Very, very Jewish way of thinking, but also very Middle Eastern uh, and very cultural at the time. So we may not understand that completely, but it is very dramatic. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen. Of course they did. Amen. And praise the Lord. They didn't praise Nehemiah. They praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And that, that's just a great testimony. They agreed to return all the property, all the interest that they had taken from the people. They agreed to continue lending the people money, but without charging them interest. And that was so important. And Nehemiah had them swear an oath before the priests to keep their agreement. And he publicly warned them not to break that agreement. Shaking out his robes is pronouncing a curse on them should they break their oath, holding them accountable. And the people praised the Lord together, and the nobles and officials kept their agreement. So everyone's happy. After all, isn't that the responsibility of a good leader? Not only in the church, but in our world. I mean, shouldn't the goal of a leader be that everyone that they lead is happy? Clearly, the leader we have right now in our country is not getting the job done because not a lot of people are very happy. So you can measure the effectiveness of a leader based on 
what they call the satisfaction or the approval rating of the people that are being led. And we won't get into the approval ratings of the current administration or Congress today. So clearly, we're not being led by the right kinds of leaders. We have to elect different types of leaders if we want to have a different type of country. But I don't know. We don't seem to get that memo. In the church, however, it is very important that the leaders in a church have this same mentality and this same approach. Because if you look at the church and the people aren't arguing and fighting and everyone's needs are met, that means that the leaders, not just me, but the other leaders in the church, all of us, are serving one another. And if we're doing that, there shouldn't be any problems in a church. So many times I hear testimony of, oh, we have all these problems in the church. Really, why? What problems do you have? And it's almost always some leader or group of leaders who don't know how to lead. Almost always. And it's funny because people say, well, we get these people, these people in the church, they start all the problems. Oh, no, 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 that's not how I roll. If there's problems with people in the church, it's the leader's fault. And it goes, as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. It starts and ends with me. If there's a problem in this church, it starts and ends with me as the pastor. And the leaders, we, we fix that problem. But here's the thing. Sometimes you get a difficult person. That doesn't mean you can't handle it properly. Look at what Nehemiah did here. These people were difficult. And yet he brought peace. So I think that's a very important lesson for leadership. Very important lesson. Okay, so he made them swear, publicly warned them. Uh, all the people praised the Lord together. That's a sign of unity, right? And the nobles and officials kept their agreement. Now, Nehemiah made unity... Unity, he made unity the ultimate goal of their correction. Not who's right and who's wrong. Unity. We don't see this in our nation either. He made unity the ultimate goal of their correction. And he used praise as the proof of that unity. For people to come together and praise together, there has to be unity, right? There really does. I mean, I've heard it said that the difference between untie and unite is where you put the eye. I really think if you're going to bring unity, it has to do with you serving others. Well, Nehemiah made that his goal. He secured from them a public confession and a promise to repent. They were still the same people, the same corrupt people, right? He's giving them an opportunity to not be those people. See, again, a good leader. He's not just criticizing them and, you know, taking it out on them and correcting them. He's directing them as well, as we've said. He looked to God to judge his people and promoted unity among God's people, and he allowed those who had repented to be personally accountable to God. See, that's ultimately what you want to do in correction. Make people accountable to God, not to you, to God. If they believe in God, if they love God, then being accountable to God is much more effective than the pastor checking in on them all the time. You know, I always tell the, if there's teenagers sitting in the back, I will uh, often say, listen, you can sit back here, because I, I don't want to be that guy, you know, it's like, you can't sit back here, you got to sit there. But you're not looking at your phone. I don't want people walking in the back door, and the first thing they see is a bunch of teenagers on their phone during worship service, right? So I made that very clear to them in a nice, loving way, you know? And, uh, you know, every once in a while I glance just to make sure they're taking it seriously. They, they seem, to, they have not... Uh, you know, told me, oh, okay, and put it away and then sneak it back out as far as I can tell thus far. Because I think they understand I mean business. They also understand you're in the house of God and the pastor told you to put your phone away. Put your phone away, right? So that seems to have an impact. 
Not to nag people, but to make them accountable to God. Well, Nehemiah refused also to take advantage of his own people. I know that sounds trite. It sounds kind of obtuse, like, yeah, no kidding. But wait a minute. There's so many leaders that that's exactly why they're leading. Corruption has caused them. They got into politics or church leadership. Why? To take advantage of others. We see it all the time. It's, it's, it makes me very angry. It's very upsetting. But here's what happens in verses 14 through 16. Nehemiah refused. I want you to see this. I want you to see this. He refused to receive any compensation that would further burden his people. See, he was obviously a wealthy man. He didn't need the salary, so he didn't take it. Makes me think of a president we just had. Never received a dime for the job he did for four years. Say what you want. That's something. That's something. So, you know, when I look at this, I think, this man, Nehemiah, he, he, he wasn't in it for the money. He was in it for the people. Well, here's what we learn in verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Now, wealthy people acquire land. That's how they become wealthier. That's not why they were there. They were there to serve. You know, Nehemiah served as governor of Judah for 12 years, from the 20th to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. I'm sure he was back and forth, as we'll see, you know, back and forth to to Susa and the citadel, but, but he was the governor for 12 years. And he and his brothers, he was surrounded by his brothers, never availed themselves of the food that was allotted to the governor. The governor was allowed to kind of take that as a perk, and he, and he wouldn't take it. He rejected the abusive practices of the earlier governors that had preceded him. They had received 40 shekels of silver from the people as their salary. He didn't take it. They had availed themselves of the food and wine allotted to the governor as well. And their assistants, and it's always those assistants. you got to watch them, right? (laughs) The assistants also abused their authority over the people. He did not act in that way because he revered God. He worshiped God. See, that's ultimately what you want. You want a person in charge that respects and reveres God because they have a conscience and they can be reached. You can appeal to them even when they get it wrong. So he devoted himself to the task that God had called them to do, building the wall of Jerusalem. And he and his men were there for the work that needed to be done not to acquire land or wealth. So when someone says, oh, pastor, I'd like to go into ministry, I say, okay, I hope you're there for the work. Because there aren't any perks anyway. And you're there for the work. You're there for the work. Nehemiah refused to further burden his people. Why? Because he had a burden for them. He did. He refused to be compensated at the people's expense. And he served the people instead of serving himself by abusing his authority. What a great example. He was building God's kingdom, not his own empire. Well, in the last few verses here, in verses 17 through 19, furthermore, it gives us a little bit more information. And he's not, listen, he's not bragging. 
He's setting an example for others to follow. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. (laughs) Imagine, tomorrow, if you're cooking Thanksgiving dinner, imagine 150 people showing up. Good luck with that. 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, that is, and his guests, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Oh, so now we're beginning to understand the food was not just given to him, it was given to his entire staff and all the people that governed. So that doesn't sound so abusive. Well, that was the allocated expenses. But he didn't even take those. He was due that, he was owed that. By all rights, he had every right to take the salary. He had every right to receive that allotment of food to feed these 150 people. But he didn't do it because he didn't need it. He did better than that. He provided for his own needs and the needs of others at his own expense. Sound like Jesus to me. He provided food for 150 Jews, as well as foreign officials, ambassadors, and others. He paid the cost of feeding these men himself. He was never compensated. He was never compensated at the people's expense. He just prayed that God would be pleased. Look, let's, let's continue there. Verse 19. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. All he wanted was for God to remember, that is to see what he had done and know his heart. To know that he had been faithful to God's call. That's really, that was the only compensation he really wanted. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's really all he wanted. Nehemiah served his people because he was accountable to the Lord. So he just prayed that God would be pleased with him for all that he had done for his people. He desired God's favor, not the favor of men. He didn't care what anyone else thought. He had a personal relationship with God, and he had a heart for God's people. And so Nehemiah, in this chapter, becomes a wonderful example of servant leadership. There may not be another example better laid out than this chapter. To see the heart of a man who loved God and served God's people. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for this encouraging word. Thank you, Lord, that you show us how we ought to be. And Lord... If we can be so bold, we pray that in our blessings we can be a blessing. And what better time than, there isn't a better time than Thanksgiving to think this through. What an opportunity we have to not only be thankful, but to be a blessing to others. May tomorrow and throughout this weekend, may you give us opportunities to, in maybe small ways, to be like Nehemiah, to be a blessing. Burden our hearts with the needs of those that you would have us meet through the blessings you've provided for us. And if we don't have what we need to meet the needs of others, may you give it to us so that we can meet the needs of others, not selfishly for ourselves. In all of our blessings, Lord, may we honor you, glorify you, and love your people, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.